Scott and Liam versus Evil. His name was, well, it was brothers, it was Willie Picton and Robert Picton. I can't remember who did what, but basically they grew up in this pig farm and they killed, at least one of them killed like over 40 women over the course of however many years. But they slaughtered the pigs and said, you know, you cut a pig open, you hang them up through the front legs and the back legs and you cut them in half so you can get all the head cheese and all that kind of thing and stuff out. They done that to the people and they found heads cut in half. But what they also done, which was super interesting, is that the guy had sent like grounded meat uh-huh. the human meat and with the pig meat and sent it off to like the local retailers to make sausages so I think it was Port Coquitlam in Canada and it was complete accidental can- cannibalism all over there and, and the police didn't want to tell anybody for like two years because they were feared to say yeah you may have eaten uh, some uh, some people in those sausages I was finding out about the, the Pictons at the same time as I was watching the movie we're going to talk about today and uh, the real life serial killers are way more interesting and more fun than this piece of shit that you made me watch <laughs> Welcome to Scott and Liam versus Evil episode 55. I'm Liam. I'm Scott. And today we talk about, it was my pick, a fun little lost VHS gem from 1990 called Blood Salvage, directed by Tucker Johnson. You'd be surprised to find out, Scott, that this was his only film. Oh, really? (laughs) Wow. I wonder why that is. Because sometimes you just want to retire on top. On top, fuck's sake, man. What I thought this one, the first note I've got is that 1990 just looks so old. Like, you don't feel as if that's that long ago, but it's that's so old. I think it's probably because it's never made it from VHS to DVD or anything else that the quality is always going to be dire. Yeah, because it's not even been restored. It's, like, literally a, a straight rip of how the VHS... Yeah. There's even, like, stretch marks and everything, like, <sighs> as, the, as the fucking movie warps. And yet it's on Amazon Prime, so I don't know how they've done that. They've obviously copied it straight from, straight from a VHS. Because even in the American DVD websites, there's no release. Like, let it play and then just record everything as it comes across. And that's how it's, that's what it is. Because nobody's even cared to try and restore it. They're just like, ah, fuck it, just play it the way it is. Strange things are happening at Jake's Junkyard. Helping people's my business, huh? Up in. Great. Things that no one can explain. What do you suppose these stupid hicks know about fixing cars? No! I imagine they know a whole lot about fixing cars. I mean, what else they got to do around here? Things that no one can believe. I won't take girl, and I'm gonna have her. Do you think she's pretty? I think she's pretty. What you want with a cripple, anyway? Things that are only ah! supposed to happen in bad dreams. Come on in and meet the family. What have you done to my mother? <laughs> There's a little girl out in Salt Lake City who could use that heart. Might bring about uh, 40, 45. Mama! Daddy, help! That's the last time we inviting strangers to dinner. Why is your daddy doing this to me? Because he wants to fix you. Fix me? Dang, real. If you break down in Jake's neighborhood, say your prayers and run like hell. They're drugged, right? Kick them and see. Please help me. I'm sorry. I can't. Praise the Lord. Another convert. I'm gonna kill you. I made two more, and the first thing you do is run out of 
this is going to hurt. I knew something like this was going to happen. Blood salvage. If Jake can't fix it, it's been dead too long. The synopsis from the back of the video case is Jake Pruitt and his boys run a lucrative parts business out of their auto salvage yard, but it ain't just auto parts they're dealing. You see, old Jake's devised a way to sustain a human while removing vital organs one by one for sale to a demented medical broker. When Mr Evans and his family experience a little engine trouble while on vacation, Jake falls head over heels for the beautiful blonde daughter April. Will Jake steal her heart? Will Scott? Willie. Well, it starts off, we meet the family. Well, I don't know if we're going to start, I can't fucking remember where it starts off. But when we meet the family that April's part of, she's in a beauty pageant. Uh-huh. She's also in a wheelchair. Uh-huh. How the hell can a handicap... <laughs> I'm well, surprised you noticed that. How can a handicapped girl compete in a, compete in a pageant is what I was asking. In, in, the, in the time <laughs> that it was set, not in today. People in wheelchairs can do whatever the fuck they want, except climb stairs. But it's a, but um, this is how can you complete a pageant? And then I seen the quality of the tap dancer that was uh, competing <laughs> against them. I thought, you know, there's no fucking way this is even a real thing. So it opens up at the, the worst hillbilly pageant, as you say. I don't think... It's just a creepy place for fucking old guys to want to stick their dicks in young lasses. As all beauty pageants are. It's pretty much how it goes, isn't it? Children's pageants, fucking Miss World, Miss Scotland, all of them. Just old, dirty guys wanting to stick their dick in. I don't know if April's been disabled for her entire life. They tell you at one point she got a disease that so fucked she, her muscles, I think. So maybe she had enrolled into the pageant before she had the disease? Yeah, I think they were saying that. Or maybe not. She rolled into the pageant at the start. Oh, she enrolled. Oh. Yeah, enrolled. <laughs> I thought she were. Oh, it's a wheelchair joke. <laughs> um, no, I, I got the impression that um, she was maybe like doing pageants for a long time, but she was still trying to do them now that she's in a wheelchair. And her family just didn't have the heart to tell her that you, you won't win. You're in a wheelchair, and you won't win. But also, I think if you've got a, a form to fill in for a pageant, I don't think there's a section for can you walk. Yeah. Because then, well, sorry, guys. Special no. talent. I can do some skiddies. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so they then they have the pageant and that's where we meet Jake our kind of auto salvage guy who stands maybe about a foot away from her staring at her like a creepy demented old man just one is he just in the audience so he wasn't even part of the pageant was no he? he was just in the audience yeah. uh, I think his April is quite good well she can walk or not <laughs> regardless yeah. she's she's also not 16 yeah she's oh, she's well done she's 40 but yeah, but it's the 90s. Everyone that plays a kid is well like to do whatever the hell he wanted. <laughs> can, I, can I just say, but while we're at the pageant, her talent is playing the piano. Uh-huh. She is also not playing that piano. <laughs> For starters, she's sitting at a grand piano but making noises as though she's playing a harpischord. She's also not two people. <laughs> For the sounds that she's making. But anyway, continue. <laughs> the best bit with that is when it goes to like the ending finale. There's a little kind of quiet bit. And she th- I think she's obviously really worked on miming those bits perfectly. Uh-huh. And she's still like three seconds out. She's like, <laughs> it totally was, wasn't it? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, and overlooking that, it's not a fun fucking movie. I don't know, but I forgot about what difference. Because this is one of the ones I watched at night. I put it on it. Uh, well, you give me your Amazon logins because I hate Amazon and I won't subscribe to them again. Um, so I was watching at night on my iPad with earphones and Listen to earphones, there's a lot of weird background noise, like silly effects and mumbling voices. Now, some of that is explained later on, which we'll get to, but it's just like, it's almost off-putting when it's in your ears. You need to start watching movies with, like, like actual 
sound bars. No, but you just... fully you can fully get immersed in it when you've got earphones in because you pick up all the different wee bits. The only people that watch all their movies in like a small screen with earphones in are perverts. Or people that don't want to wake up their sleeping girlfriend to batter them for it because yeah because they're watching fucking dodgy diddler videos. <laughs> well, you told me to watch it. <laughs> uh, no, that's it. So just before she plays the piano, the the host introduces it as the waltz in B minor by Chopin. Me <laughs> <laughs> Chopin. Surely you can. Surely you've done some sort of research. You know his name. Don't just call him Chopin. And then this when the son, like the dad. Or Jake, sorry, is then talking about how he wants he wants April, he wants to get her. But she was seen in the paper as April 17, former runner-up, which I think was a wee in-joke because she was a former runner and now she can't because she's in a chair. <laughs> uh, so the, the son says, would you want me a cripple anyway? And Jake says, when you're older, I'll explain. What? Aye, what, because... What does, he, what does he mean? When you're older, I'll explain? Because guy... older. What, what do you want? We're a cripple. You're sexy. You're sexy. You're a devious old bastard. <laughs> like, what, what was the question again? What, what, what do you want with a cripple? What, what do you want with a cripple anyway? Because Jake was like, oh, I'm going to... Yeah, got to get, get her. Because she can't run away. It's quite clear. But then why did he have to say, oh, when you're older, I'll explain? Because the guys also look 40 as well. <laughs> They're all like fucking 40. Yeah. Um, where's the part where they've got Evander Holy- Holyfield in it? <laughs> <laughs> It's so fucking bizarre. <laughs> they're at like a, a circus and there's a Evander Holyfield and it is the genuine mm-hmm. real Evander Holyfield. Pre uh full years. Uh, pre Mike Tyson ripping his ear off. And he's in the ring and his manager is trying to get somebody in the crowd to come up and take a punch for Mike Tyson. Uh, go one round for five hundred bucks. That what it is. And Evander Holfield was actually an executive producer of the film. <laughs> Just, I mean, I mean, what the hell is going on? I, I, I Do you know what? That's probably why Mike Tyson bit his ears off. <laughs> I don't know why, because he's. I think every other film he's ever produced is all about boxing. He's obviously he's been drunk or drugged or somebody's <laughs> forced him into this. But when we went on IMDb to see what else he produced, he, he's trivia it said friends with MC Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> How much? <laughs> Terrible life must you lead. The IMDb, the top trivia thing about you is that you you're friends with MC Hammer. And I even go MC Hammer to check what his trivia was. <laughs> friends with Evander Holyfield, <laughs> producer of the, the brilliant film Blood Salvage. No. Uh, so then we got cuts the family and they're in the RV. Uh huh. And did you happen to see the big giant yellow boom mic? Oh, the here? boom! I <laughs> fucking boom mics in it all the time. There's there's one scene that it's like fully in, like like, like touching them. You kind of wonder why, if you want to make something a bit inconspicuous, why would you paint it yellow? Yeah. <laughs> why would you choose a yellow boom mic? I've, I've written down a couple of quotes here. I don't know where they came in. I've got, like, no Bobby, you stay with the women. Now, I think this was a very sexist quote I've written down. Again, I don't remember. Early 90s. Yeah, I don't remember what, in what context. Uh, I've got, I'm, I must have been so annoyed at this already. This is still the start of the movie. And the next quote is, uh, I knew something like this was going to happen. I'm like, I did, yeah, I just so fed up with it. But I'm taking this as when they're on the, uh, they're driving in the RV and it, the wheel falls off straight away, doesn't it? Uh-huh, the wheel just, because they listen to, the they listen to it. One of the wheels fully falls off and then they just drive slowly into the side of the road. Right? <laughs> now, okay, maybe that'll happen. But then... Do you think Blood Salvage had the budget to show you to a smash film, up the van? A fucking one hundred fifty thousand no. dollar RV. Because I'll get up. to the reason why it's a pain in the ass later on in the movie. Um, <laughs> so this is, I think, this is when our hillbilly guys pop out and say, "Oh, you've crashed your van or whatever, and we can fix it." Oh, or, do you, or Jake thing. appears in his 
and like a kind of foreboding scene where it comes out of the darkness and he comes to try to give them help because <laughs> they broke down obviously and, and then you go, and then the dad goes I've got a daughter on board who doesn't travel so well she's handicapped I'm like so fucking what <laughs> why does that affect her travel in fact she travels better than the rest of you she's on fucking wheels <laughs> The dad's actually famous. He's been in a, he's been he's, in a few things. Uh, the dad is John Saxon from Nightmare on Elm Street, mm-hmm. from Dust Till Dawn, Enter the Dragon. Pretty oh, much Enter the Dragon! So yeah, that's the only movie he plays where he's not somebody's dad. Yeah, pretty much. Aye. He's like he's the go-to B movie dad. Yeah, is that? It's got quite a alright cast. Well, that's it. No, who the Dan, fuck is Danny it? Nelson that plays Jake was in the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Is what? Stranger number two. Man, he's also in the Legend of Bagger Vance. As what? Caddy number two. (laughs) And Ray Walston was a teacher from Fast Times at Regiment High. And he's also in the TV adaptation of The Stand. And you can't say anything bad about Stephen King, so go fuck yourself. I but who was he though? Just one of the like these people. No, he was no John uh, Ray Walston was an actual like quite a prolific actor. The dad was only one that I recognised. If I recall back to this, um, so th- this is about where the the sound. Did you listen to this movie in the earphones? No, I listened to it in the TV. That's and did you get it? Where the sound? The goes. sound completely flicks, and it's in the earphones. It kind of it's like the the stretch mark of the the VHS like stretches out, and then the sound just warps, and then you get it in your left your left ear about half a second in front of your right <laughs> ear, and I'm like, what the fuck! And so it's like somebody shouting at you the whole way through it. I'm like, this is fucking watch it, garbage. Watch it in the TV. It just then sounds like they're talking in a tin can. And it's like so, it's like all the dubbing is off about yeah. half a second. Aye. It's horrible. <laughs> Did you know get a, a vibe for the whole movie though? Quite a bit like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, you um, could see what they were what they were trying to do. There's a lot of similarities in some of the Lingon shots, the way that later on when they're exploring the house, each character goes individually. While some of them stay in the RV, yeah. quite like Texas Chainsaw uh-huh. Massacre. Uh, one of them's in a wheelchair like Texas Chainsaw uh-huh. Massacre the Jake the actual character like the bad guy is totally like the chef yeah that Jim Sidow and we've got, got the big simple son who's not wearing a leather face but he is big and simple <laughs> simple and he'll does he pick somebody up at one point as well I think uh, he might I don't really remember that happening aye but anyway, he didn't get but, yeah, son. there's there's a lot. Of, there's like almost hyperactive weirdo son. Yeah, there's actually quite a lot of similarities. Basically, they've changed some gave it a more fun story, maybe made it not quite as serious a horror movie. Yeah, and also like Toby Hooper's eaten alive because Jake's got a pet alligator, which we've still not talked about. Wait, that's not even fucking <laughs> any point in having that alligator either. It only shows up for like two scenes at the start and at the end. Because yeah, it's the thing is you can't really control a, a, an alligator <laughs> in film. When it's sitting stationary, you can film it, and as soon as it starts moving, you get that fucking camera off. It's just the whole the whole thing is just. I don't know. It just seems. Shit. <laughs> it's not shit. Do you know what this? If you, do you want to notice about the wee brother as well? He's a kid actor who's annoying as shit because they always are. But he's a such an idiot. Big heed wee body. <laughs> he's like a bobblehead man. He's wee he's, he's just call about idiot. Idiot. Big heed wee body. Henry Dodie. Big heed wee body. <laughs> no, idiot. Idiot sounds better. But Henry Dodie. Henry Dodie. That's sounds like, like a real man. <laughs> you don't want a real man. You want an idiot. <laughs> idiot wouldn't be the name of a person. Because uh, it's no. It's just it's rhymes. No, but it's meant to be like it was a real person once. So a big heed wee body. <laughs> Henry Dodie. I like idiot better. <laughs> uh, 
It's got a really believable good plotline. The fact really? That, yeah. The fact that Jake has lost a loved one because the poor can't get transplants. So he's decided, fuck it, I'm going to take it in my own hands and start harvesting organs from other people. Is that what the plot line is? Was, right, well, yeah. I, I can, I got this. I've got 45 <laughs> minutes in and I've only just worked out their game, Organ Sellers. <laughs> I didn't get it before then. Um, the fucking movie's called Blood Salvage. You I, know, but I didn't know guess it before. I didn't even know that's what I meant. I've also got, um, there, there must be a quote here as well before we, we talk about their, their, their operation game. All women are whores and it doesn't matter what they look like. Uh, I don't. I haven't put quotation marks around that, so I don't know if that's my thoughts or the movie's <laughs> thoughts, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, there you get that tattooed on you next. Yeah. You're another thing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, do we even, do we, do we see an operation at this point? We must, because the next note I've got is the spinal injection made me feel queasy, because it looks, it's obviously a close-up of skin, but you're assuming it's... The spinal injection, I think, was way later when he's got April. That's, but I don't think he was injecting her spine. Did he, did he suck some spine juice out the wee boy or the dad or something? Oh, possibly. I think that was because I'm sure. A lot, in fact, yeah, because it's a definitely lot that's where my note comes in. Spine sucking. My notes are kind of all over the place. I, I, I watched it twice. I was going to watch it a third time. I thought it might be a bit much in the space of two weeks to watch Blood Salvage three times. Watching it once <laughs> is a bit much. <laughs> uh, there's a bit where Roy, the, the kind of big dim-witted son, uh-huh. comes out <laughs> the, the cabin with a doll, and he's obviously been in there doing something, and the doll's missing a head, and I was like. Was he fucking that doll? <laughs> was he fucking it? And after he, after he comes out, he kind of picks up and he's like, oh, I love you, and sets the doll back down. I thought they've actually implied that that big, just simple-minded, simpleton was fucking a doll. Like, this fucking it amazing. in the neck hole? Yeah, fucking it, like, proper. Yeah, neck fucking it. That's amazing. It's just like, we just find anything, like, sitting about the house that's got a big enough hole in it, you just fucking... <laughs> You know, again, was that in the movie? Or was that your thoughts? <laughs> Don't know. I've got like, see the hillbilly that's less simple, like the middle one. Uh-huh. That's like he's annoying as fuck. Can't see that because he died shortly after this movie was made. Because he, because he was annoying as fuck. <laughs> I don't actually know why he died. I think he, he died quite young. Probably overdose. He looked like a junkie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, his family is listening. We have just tarred this guy with, with a, a horrific brush. I'm sorry that he's dead. I don't actually. If know he why. was, if he was acting to try and make us hate the character, then he'd done a fantastic job at acting. So well done, dead man. I thought he was still looking like he kind of portrayed the hillbilly quite well. It's not difficult to pay, portray a hillbilly. Yeah, he portrayed it quite funny because somebody <laughs> at some point he's he's banging the broom when she's moving about upstairs. He's like, I'll come up there and bang you with this broom. <laughs> You're like, fair enough, mate. <laughs> we must find out. What he's planning to um, heal her legs. Uh-huh. That's that's like what his what his game is. Um, so he must have said it or he must have started it. And like, so is he planning to heal her legs so that he can then fuck her? Is it sure that it'd be easy to leave her as she is? So she can't <laughs> run away. <laughs> and I've got uh, how it must be like, Lieutenant Dan, you got new legs. <laughs> how are you fucking ungrateful is she though that she got new legs? I know she's what a bitch. Maybe she liked the wheelchair. Maybe get a little attention. <laughs> Well, they obviously didn't know enough attention because <laughs> she never wanted to be a Because <laughs> uh, he does say, I, uh, I make you walk and the first thing you do is run out on me. <laughs> like, for how shit the dialogue is, it's actually quite quirky. But do you think all these wee clever things that you're picking out, do you think that was meant or just uh, coincidence? I think the most no, that's just coincidence. I think it was meant because at the very start when it shows you his garage, it says Jake's paint and the tea for his paint and body shop, the tea's slant, so it's paint. 
and body shop and I was like ah I'm gonna like this I'm gonna like this I found this by accident going through Amazon Horror and I was like this looks this looks like something that I'm gonna enjoy and Scott's gonna how could you say it was like it was like really really bad contrast colours of a guy's face and fucking knows what he was holding that was all it is but that's why I thought (laughs) I'm gonna like this Scott's gonna hate it this is gonna be brilliant I'm gonna make him watch it have we seen have we seen we must have seen their operations when he takes out a liver and gives it to the doctor and they're wearing they're wearing wearing welding masks covered in blood but their overalls are getting any blood whatsoever on him also to the fact that it's in a stinking old garage and it's also the fact that he's not only taking all the organs out of these people he's keeping them alive wasn't it directed by fucking David Attenborough? It wasn't directed by... It was, it was, <laughs> like, there, was, like, there was no way any of those people were getting any fucking staying alive by the operations that he was doing with his fucking rusty old tools and his weird fucking son or brother. Aye, but when you watch a, a movie like this, you, you turn your mind off, don't you think of the, the lack of realism? Th- think of the uh, added fun. I, I was I, I was on, <coughs> I downloaded a game for Xbox Live the other day there it was one of these free games mm-hmm. so I was like yeah I'll get a new game I'll try it switched it on and you're in space somewhere and the first thing you do is you wake up for your coma or whatever you jump out of bed and I turned around in the bed that I was on the obs machine was still reading somebody's blood pressure I thought nah switched it off I played it for like it was, I don't know what it was called Trudent or something Trident and I played it for like three minutes fucking obs machine was still reading blood pressure and a pulse I was like nah nah so why, how can you still think The Walking Dead is so fucking realistic? Because it's fucking realistic. What, what's, it's not. What's, what's not realistic about it? Zombies. Aye, obviously. How many else are smart ass? <laughs> uh, so, we find out, is this, did we find out what's in the barn yet? Uh, is this where it's all the medical, kind of, all the guys he's keeping alive? Because there's a zombie Elvis, which we've not talked about. <laughs> he appears in two scenes. In fact, I don't know why, but he just sits there and he's like, oh. <laughs> and it's Elvis. But he's keeping Elvis alive, harvesting his organs. And then there's somebody else that's fucking getting forced to blowjob one of the machines for their whole life with a big tube stuck in their throat. Are you watching Blood Salvage or are you watching something? This is just what, this is what it is, man. You start watching things on a bigger screen than fucking 13 inches and you actually see what's it, on. <laughs> it turns out that the mumbling that I can hear in my earphones because it's, it happens subtly through the whole thing when they're when they're on the kind of farm or the salvage yard is because he's keeping all these people alive in the barn uh-huh. and you find them and you're like, fuck, that's what all the mumbling is. That's, it's not clever. Is it or is it the director of like subconsciously going, like my movie <laughs> probably, Enjoy I, it. probably you can hear it in the headphones whereas I've not and I fucking love this film because but I've been caught with it there's there's a bit in it there's there's like church singing in the background and it's dead dead creepy it's like it's getting played in an old LP now this is probably my favourite part of the whole film is it they washed in the blood of the lamb no is that the finished the end oh, song right, so no that. we'll get to that uh, one uh, that, the tune that's playing through um, I can't remember what scene it is but it must be around about where we're talking when she's maybe trying to escape or something and it's it's I think it's the exact same that Darren Brown played once at a live show when he was simulating like a old Victorian seance with the table flipping mm-hmm. and all the different stupid things they used to fool people with. And he's playing this creepy old church music and it's quiet for like twenty minutes in the theatre and everybody's just listening to this record playing and the guys are he's making the table flip and stuff. So you think it's real, but obviously it's not real because it's Darren Brown. He's showing you how he do it. But it's um, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. That's too low for me. <laughs> uh, it was also this. I think it was also the song that played my pap's funeral. So I bought Bing Crosby's version, and I cry when it comes on. I have a pap crying with that. Pap actually is dead though, so that's so that's a. So that's fair enough. Um, Should you give a kind of what's actually happened in this movie? 
Fuck, fuck knows. Who knows? Well, they've took basically they've wiped out the whole family, pretty much the whole family. Took April, gave her new legs, but she's fucking raging about it. Yeah. Escapes. He brings her back in, and there's like a whole there's a whole fight chase scene where she's got to get away from the alligator, <laughs> which could easily do with being cut by about sixty seven minutes, and you would still get the idea that she's been chased by an alligator because <laughs> it just keeps going on. That's probably my only criticism of this brilliant film. <laughs> the, the alligator chase scene is too long. I like an alligator chase scene. I like I like the idea of being chased by an alligator, but it doesn't need to go on for 12 minutes. It's, you know, it's exactly. That's like this whole film. <laughs> no, the whole film. The rest of the film is fucking brilliant. Amanda I- Holyfield's cameo. Like, I, I think that was the part that when that came on, I went, oh yeah, fuck it. I'm definitely choosing this. Because it just gets you so off guard. Why the fuck is Amanda Holyfield here? I've got... Can I just... Um, right, I, I, I was just looking at my notes. I've, I've kind of jumped over a bit, but I'm actually quite pleased with my notes. Uh, so my notes kind of run right out to the end of the movie. So uh, I'll, you you can discuss, or we can discuss in the movie, and then I want to just read them out, and I'll and I stop just before the end credits. Right, okay. Right, so so I can talk about what's happening. Just talk then. about all, and then I'll go back and just read my notes <clears> is the right. way I read them. When Jake, so there's a, a, a big kind of tussle and eventually she sets Jake on fire. That scene, the practical <coughs> effects of that scene are well done. The Man on Fire? Yeah. yeah. For a low budget 90s film, only straight to VHS that nobody really gave a fuck about, that it had shite dubbing. But that practical effect was good. Do you think it's quite easy to set something on fire though? It uh, probably is. I don't think so. And also the fact that then afterwards where he, He's burnt and she runs over him in the RV. Oh, oh, when he's the fucking Terminator or something? That looks good. That still looks good now. He was like... The makeup's well done. Do you know what he's like? Is, is it in Lord of the Rings when it's like Sauron when he's like lava underneath like the, yeah. the crusty outside? That's what he looked like. Right, so, hold on. What movie won all the Oscars for makeup and all that? No blood salvage, Jamie, that's for sure. So if, he, if his makeup reminds you of the fucking 5,000 Oscar winning... Aye, but that was a big mythical beast that was like a big like volcano monster. Aye. This is just a guy. That's, that's even better. It makes him look scarier. <laughs> it has a whole level of fear to the movie. Uh, there's then high-speed car chases, there's leaps, there's explosions, there's people <coughs> on fire, there's alligators, and there's a burnt body flattened by the RV. I'm not seeing a problem with this film yet. I'm seeing quite a lot. Right, Do you want me to power through? Yeah. So I'm it. taking it from when we find out what the mumbling is in the barn and that she is trying to escape the room. I'm like, she looks a lot older than a teenager. Wait, she was in her underwear a second ago. That scene was cut. She was sitting in a bra. She's supposed to be 17. Then the next scene, she's got clothes back on. Aye, because she's now got legs, so she can stand mm-hmm. up and dress herself. There's no way that man could do all those medical tasks that they're claiming, especially on that clatty old garage full of oscilloscopes and old tellies. But they probably could. Don't you don't know. Know. Well, it would be infection. No. But you can still you can still do the surgery. No, I but you shouldn't be keeping them alive, you should be taking the organs out and that's it, end of the story. But I've a minor plot hole okay. <laughs> then, then, I, then a quote which I think is from the, the hillbilly who's now dead. I could rape you right now <laughs> And then it continues on with sound about your faggot boyfriends. <laughs> uh, maybe not accepted now. Maybe maybe you can't joke about that. Um the walking acting. When she starts walking, when she's really walking, is fucking tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, so Daddy has never heard of stop, drop, and roll. This is when he's in fire because he does not stop, drop, or roll. Uh, what the fuck is keeping them all alive? 
Why did she just leave the poor soul that was getting a blowjibber to the machines? <laughs> then how the fuck is she it daytime? Trans- she translate blowjibber. <laughs> it's Scott's childish way of saying a blowjob. How the fuck is it daytime? It was nighttime one scene, and then they run outside with her mum, and it's fucking daylight. Yeah. After we talked about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you never questioned why it suddenly became fucking... Like the sun, the sunrise. Well, I tell you why I'm going to continue moaning about it in this film because later on you've got one scene where it's bone dry and the next scene it's fucking pissing down with rain and not just because it's just started. The ground is sodden. They clearly have been like, ah, right, we've got we've only got another two hours of uh, shooting time, so <laughs> it's raining. Ah, oh, fuck it, let's just date anyway. That's clearly how it went. They had no time to reschedule and wait for it to dry up. They just went, ah, fuck it, they'll notice. No. We will notice. Of course This is why he has not directed another fucking movie. Of course there's no good time. Look at the budget. Right, now here's the question, right? Uh-huh. Um, so at the end, you know how they were saying how the wheel fell off uh-huh. at the RV and they went back and they had this whole thing, I'll come back to your salvage yard, we'll fix it. And then it was also just a ploy to get them back so they could hook them up to machines and steal their organs. Uh-huh. Why the fuck did they fix the camper van? Because when she jumps in it, we are newly found legs, she can now drive also. It's and, an expensive uh, camper van. They'd be making a fortune if they sold it. Hmm. Uh, I've got another, uh, I've got another uh, quote from uh, the same hillbilly. You fucking slut! I'll fucking key. <laughs> so at no point in this movie is that guy Australian. So, uh, <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know, so, I don't know what impression that was. Right here we go. That burnt zombie man. He's just a human. You would need to, you would just need to blow on him and he'd be in fucking agony. He d- jumps into the van and then he gets flying out the window and he still stands up and he's like ran down again. Which again is a good fun scene. Think about it in another movie. Because you've turned your mind off to this at the very start, you've just switched my mind. I'm not going to enjoy this. I've switched my mind right off. Uh, my, la- my next note is when the fuck did it start raining, like I've already said. And then the next part is who the fuck is singing the end credits song? This better be the cast singing in character. If this is a real song, I'm going to buy all their albums. That <laughs> <laughs> the Washed in the Blood of the Lord. Uh-huh. Uh, we'll, play it, we'll play it out at some point during the episode because it's, it's quite a creepy tune. You just play it now. For the cleansing power, are you washing the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His graces? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood? In the blood, in the soul cleansing blood. Is that, so is that the cast? I don't know who it is. Is that a real song? It is a real song, but I don't know who That can't be, no, that I, must so be the it cast. Is, it's, it's Jake singing it, but Aye. I think it's like a real... Uh, it is a real song, it's but real it's named in a version of it. Song, Aye. Yeah. Because that's that's not, that's there must be characters, there's no way they're being serious <laughs> with that. Do you know why this is good though, and why other B movies and Z movies are as fun? Because even now you can still go back and watch them without them being hindered or tainted by someone in the cast being a diddler. <laughs> you can't even watch things now. I can't watch American Beauty because Kevin Spacey's been at the diddling. You can't even watch... Yeah, but what diddling was Kevin Spacey up? actually? They showed somebody's dick and asked another guy to fuck him. But when... He asked a 14-year-old boy to fuck him. Right, but did he? He woke up in the morning hugging the 14-year-old boy. 
Well, no, okay, that's obviously not, not cool, man. It's gutted they get caught. But, but, so, uh, but all these, right, I know it doesn't ruin the movies the same as the remake thing, but it taints it a wee bit. You can't enjoy them fully as much because you're like, ah, oh, you're such a dirty bastard. B movies, see if they've all been fiddling wins. Doesn't it matter because you don't hear about it, so it does matter, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they weren't fiddling wins, but you don't hear about it, so I can watch Blood Salvage again and again and again, and at no point do I go, I can't believe that guy beasted like five wins. Can I watch American Beauty? Can I watch Toy Story? Can I, I can't, watch, can't watch Toy Story? The guy for Pixar's been a. Uh, there's been allegations, <laughs> but apparently his allegations were that he, he just liked to hug people. Well, that's what I'm saying. Did 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 he forcefully squeeze his penis inside somebody's orifice, but or did he just squeeze a few bums? Because you know the lines are getting blurry here no, these days. If you're at work and somebody comes up and hugs you and you don't want to, <laughs> then that's still fucking sexual misconduct. So, does need to hug each other in your work that they don't want? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but it kind of taints the movies a wee bit because it's then in the public eye so all Quentin Tarantino's films because there's Harvey Weinstein that's not going to bother me because Harvey Weinstein you just, no just don't watch them again because they're shite shut the f- <laughs> oh, oh this is a joyous thing all around <laughs> uh, but B-movies are never tainted because you never hear what quality stuff they what if, uh, what if Bruce Campbell's a Kenny Diddler he's a bit different because he's still on like he's not an A-lister but he's still very much oh, so he's eye. the king of the B movies, and he's like he's yeah, like above he's, B he's movie still folk. The public but... eye. So if he was a fiddler, it would still taint Evil Dead, because all this way, all this was going in my head, and it was kind of upsetting me a wee bit. So last night on Netflix, I put on the Burbs because I know Tom Hanks is never going to be diddling or fiddling anyways. I seen a post that says them um, that and that it was like something like four women came forward to make claims about Tom Hanks about how, about how he's really nice. Yeah, I think that's. Too Which, much of a cover, yeah, because he must. He's probably the fucking king of the fiddlers. I bet he, I bet he invites. I bet he had a party with fucking Harvey Weinstein and, and uh, Kevin Spacey and invited folk into their house. And he, you know what? He probably fucking killed them and buried them under his under see, his house. See what's actually shit about That's that. That's why they don't complain about Tom Hanks because <laughs> they can't. The silence. See what's shit about that. <clears throat> when the Harvey Weinstein thing came out, <clears throat> I've got a friend Chris for school who does stand up, and he put a post up like that, like a hilarious post about Stanley Tucci and how. He's just such a nice guy, and there's so many complaints. There are not complaints, people commenting about it. And this was maybe about a month before that the women about Tom Hanks, and I'm positive they just fucking copied him. <laughs> like, see, somebody was done it. I was like, that's a fucking rip off, and I, I, I'm I'm certain it was. But Tom Hanks isn't. He's not doing anything. Tom Hanks is a fucking saint, <laughs> and that's why I could sit and I could enjoy the burbs and. Corey Feldman's half his fucking head. Aye, so, but he's he, he's product of diddling, so you're setting, you're just watching I, by proxy, diddling by proxy. Aye, but I can watch. A if point. you can sit back, if you can sit back and, and enjoy the meltdown of a victim, then you be sort just fucking the kids themselves. But Corey Feldman never said he was fucked. Aye, because he didn't want to. He was fucked. Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> see the thing is, it's a mean thing to say. See, what, see, see, listen to his album on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Corey Feldman deserved to be fucked <laughs> because that guy's that guy's fucking gone he nearly killed me and Scott had a we uh, were in a band a few years ago and we had a song about the Goonies and we actually approached Corey Feldman to see if he would do the video Aye. and Corey Feldman was fully up for it he was gone and we only had to pay him like 500 quid <laughs> and for Corey Feldman that's not a lot of money no but that's how 
fucking lost it, Corey Feldman is. And that was before he really went batshit with the Corey Feldman and the Angels. You no, know, yeah, well, he was still doing that because we were, I was hoping to get an invite to the, the Corey Feld mansion for um, his, one of his uh, parties. Corey Feld mansion. The Corey Feld mansion. Um, and you get uh, you get girls for your entry Corey Phil Manson's a four in a row he, char- <laughs> he, char- he charges but he makes all these lasses dress up like angels he charges guys to get in his house and he lets women in for free and then he's, he's lost a, it he's a three way kiss when he blows out his candles <laughs> and all the girls all look like proper drugged up prostitutes aye they don't look like playboy bunnies they look like fucking junkies <laughs> but so I could watch it Bob's to overlook Corey Feldman. What about who else is in the Burbs? Is that other guy not been in the Burbs? Bruce Dern, he's not even in the Burbs. Carrie Fisher and all that. Oh, that old army guy must have been a diddler. Bruce Dern, he's not a diddler. What about all the, um, the Clopex? Nah, I don't think any of them are diddlers. I'm not even a ginger one. Nah. <laughs> mm, I don't know about that. You know you're probably going to tweet this episode two names. So <laughs> no, well, it's good, it's good we're saying that they're not diddlers, so well done, all you actors from the Burbs. But, it made me enjoy it because Tom Hanks is a saint. All Tom Hanks was also in a movie where he was he's his character was like twelve years old and he got fucked off a, an adult woman. So technically, he was also diddled in character. That was the movie Big. If anybody watches the movie Big, I think oh, it's a brilliant film. I loved that from my childhood. It is about kid fucking. You going to tell me you don't enjoy Big? I love Big. Right, good because after the Jaws comment and we just said about Tarantino, you've kind of you've got one more strike and you're out. Shibby shibby cocoa pop. Shibby shibby right. Shibby shibby cocoa pop. Shibby shibby right. Then it says something else I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I might just give you a thumbs I'm sure shake. there's. I'm sure there's other movies that I'll say are shite and fully believe that I say they're shite, but you'll be like, oh no, that's masterpiece. I've just always been convinced that at work I'm going to get one of those giant floor pianos, just so anytime we're like, where's Liam? Do 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 Just me running up and down the big giant piano. I fucking love Tom Hanks. We just start a Tom Hanks podcast. I me, bought Liam and Tom Hanks. And I bought me, I, um, me telling people stories about me and Tom Hanks in situations that we've never actually been in, but just that we are in in my head. Like I, I wish Tom Hanks had done a horror movie so we could ask him to come on it. I was going to say get him on it because he wouldn't come on this, but he might. He might. Yeah, he won't. He's, he's too clean cut. We make jokes that Tom Hanks doesn't want to be associated with. No, and I'm okay with that because I don't want him associated with. Yeah, either. that's right. We don't want to tarnish Tom Hanks's reputation. I think Tom Hanks is the type of person that if I seen him in the street, I wouldn't even approach him because I'd be like, no. He's too good you're, for you're me. You're too good. <laughs> you're too good for me. <laughs> uh, so, Blood Salvage, before you give it your score, I give it a 7 out of 10. Right. And because it's got silly moments, it's a fun story, there's decent practical effects for what it is, and it's well worth a watch for a wee bit of 90s nostalgia. And I think it deserves a transfer to DVD because some of the, 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 the old B-movies that are coming out in Blu-ray and stuff, they're actually quite shit. This one, I think it's well worth a watch. I'd definitely buy it. Buy a deluxe edition. <laughs> uh, I hated it. I gave it 7 out of 10. Not <laughs> 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 again. Uh, this is pretty garbage. There's hundreds of plot holes. There's loads of continuity errors. Hundreds of rush scenes. There's fucking boom mics in shot. It's just terrible acting. There's a nonsense premise. I won't watch this again. So I've got a real rating. I'm giving it three wonky legs out of 10. There's an alligator. That easily deserves a lot of No. It does. Nah. I can't believe this is the one movie you choose to give a real Well, you've all given me a hard time about my ratings, so I'm giving them real ratings. I'm going low. You're going low? I'm going low. And every movie you pick from now on, I'm going low because <laughs> I bet they'll be shit. <laughs> uh, 
Uh. Hi, all you teenage comet zombies. This is Kelly Maroney, and you're listening to Scott and Liam versus Evil. So, did you watch anything else this week apart from Blood Savage? Um, no, but I did. Uh, I had been looking up the flat Earth stuff again, right uh. now. We. Um, I, I give this a three. No, hear me out. I was tagged in something this morning. Uh, was it Darren Wilson tagged me on the Facebook group? Um, this is some flat earther who's going to <laughs> who's going to launch himself in a homemade rocket <laughs> into space to prove the Earth is flat. No, I really hope he fucking does it. <laughs> I kind of hope that he kills himself, but I don't. If he's got a family, I hope he doesn't. But I just, I just, I really hope he goes through with it because it's such a bonkers idea that uh, I, I want his same way through it I've kept been sharing this flat earth thing and winding you up and posting stuff but I can't even pretend to believe it because I love space I love the universe I love the idea of aliens uh, whether they're on this planet or whether they've never made contact before you can look at the stars every night and see satellites going past you can see planets going moving back and forth you can see you can see a million million reasons why the earth is round I watched the, like a like a discovery I think it's maybe Mythbusters or something along those lines, and the three people who aren't the two main guys went to a big lake and had, like, a helicopter who sunk below the horizon of the lake because the Earth is is round. The thing that really pushed me off even trying to pretend that I like this um, theory is that the the main basis for believing it is um, because the Bible says so, and I just cannot get behind religion at all. I, I, I saved a picture. I was going to send it to you and tag you in it, and I thought, I, I can't even pretend to like this. <laughs> It's, it says Bible verses prove the earth is flat and they've listed like fucking 40 verses for the Bible and they've they've subcategorized them all for different reasons like what they state the earth has sides the earth has limits the uh, earth was made before the sun Jesus fucking I don't know what, else, what the hell else nonsense is and I thought why the fuck are you listening to a t- 2000 years plus old book that tells you the earth is flat. I'm reading this picture on an iPhone that didn't exist 2,000 years ago. Do you think that means that it doesn't exist? It's in my hand. Things change and move forward. Fucking idiots. Okay, I'm going to, maybe for like a year end, cut all your bits about how you're pro-flat earth. <laughs> like for three episodes and now that you're so against it. I just can't, <laughs> I just wish I could. I mean, the earth is round. The, the aliens are among us. The reptilians, the greys. Um, so the universe is a hologram you can manifest your own destiny if you want all this stuff is real um, I was reading about I was le- le- learning about um, Bill Cooper as well today who's exposed all these different conspiracy theories fucking the Queen's involved Princess Diana knew it she was that's why the author did you just the last podcast in the left yeah. yeah of course <laughs> uh, if you can manifest your own destiny yeah all these guys in Hollywood that have manifested their own destiny have been successful, how come they've now manifested their own destiny and being devils? Well, that's the thing because... That's why I don't think you can manifest well, your you can, you can You can manifest whatever you want. You can manifest... If you can imagine it, visualise it, and then live it, you can you can make it happen. However, it doesn't mean to say that it's going to be what you want. It's like, be careful what you wish for. I mean, you could say, I really want to see a wee boy's bum and like really <laughs> visualise a wee boy's bum and then you get that wee boy's bum you fuck it and the next thing you know you're fucking Kevin Spacey and you're, you're, you're sacked first the cards you know so so <laughs> the line's blood there between Scott whether it's me or whether it's Kevin, Kevin Spacey. Spacey I was I was, um, I was uh, uh, taking on the, the essence of Kevin Spacey no no I was I was but the, aye, fuck it you know what I mean you know what I was uh, trying to say that actually kind of comes into what I was watching this week on Netflix the Jim and Andy the great beyond uh-huh. 
documentary about Jim yep, Carrey. I've still not finished it uh, yet. You've not finished it? No. There's a good bit in it, and it's not ruining it for anyone who wants to watch it, where he talks about how his whole career, he's basically manifested it for himself. Yeah. So he's thought about how I'm going to do this big movie, blah, 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 and then he's got it. So that actually ties in with that. That's yeah. stuff you've scripted that. Yeah. Uh, well worth a watch. Definitely finish yeah. it. If you liked The Man in the Moon, Loved the it. movie about Andy Kaufman, then this is the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that was filmed at the time where you realise that Jim Carrey hasn't just lost his mind now since yeah. his girlfriend <laughs> Jim Carrey's always been tuned to the fucking moon. It's, and it kind of makes it look as if, like, he's you're behind the scenes and he's completely embodying Andy Kaufman, who was a fucking weird character yeah. himself. And he managed to make he managed to make a successful career out of being really weird, like properly weird, not even funny. It's that kind of comedy that it only seems to be funny because everybody else is laughing kind of thing. It's the kind of comedy that transcends like situations. It's it's not just funny in the moment and then he drops the character. It's funny and then he keeps pushing it and pushing yeah. it until everyone around him is like, right, is this still a joke? Yeah. Or yeah. So and so, I Jim Carrey kept in character the whole way through filming this, like behind mm-hmm. the scenes, really giving the director a hard time uh, because Andy Kaufman was on the TV show Taxi. Uh, they got back all the original cast like Christopher Lloyd and Diane DeVito. In fact, Diane DeVito had a big part in Man in the Moon, didn't he? Or did he direct uh, the movie? He or, was uh, friends with Andy Kaufman, so yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so there was a couple. Of, so Diane DeVito was a big part, but he came back doing his part for Taxi and all the other actors in Taxi, and they were like, you could see them in this Jim Carrey documentary being like, oh, it's totally like Andy, he's doing a really good job, but Jim Carrey's kicking about still being Andy Kaufman when they're not doing a scene. Yeah. They're like, uh, it's really weird, but you can see in their faces that they weren't saying, it's so amazing, it's so brilliant, look how the character he's getting. It was like, oh, this is too much, I wish you'd stop, stop it. I. It's worth a watch. It actually it kind of gives you another appreciation for the man in the moon. Mm-hmm. Jim Carrey was my fucking hero growing up. I'd I got Ace Ventura on video when I was like seven or eight for my birthday and I watched it pretty much every night for a year. I used to and watch I, it. I didn't get it when I was younger. Whoa. There was loads oh. of jokes went over my head. No, I got all the silly silliness. But See, now was... I could still sit and watch a film and do it word for word. About like Stand By Me. I could do it word for word just off the top of my head. I just, I've seen it that many times. But then he obviously started kind of coming out with that he lost his mind. It wasn't yeah. just like behind the scenes. Because... This was all happening at Man in the Moon, but Universal and that went, no, we are not putting that footage out because everybody's going to think you're a dick. So, so that, is that why it was hidden for so long? That's why they kept it away because right. they were like, we're not going to release this movie and then our star, Jim Carrey, yeah. who he thinks is the funniest man alive, the, the friendliest man, actually thinks he's an arsehole. Yeah. So that's the only reason they kept it away. Uh, well worth a watch. Yeah. Even if you've not seen the movie, it's still, if you're a fan of Jim Carrey, that it's good to see. Yeah. And it doesn't totally switch you off to him. I w- I'm not switched off. Kind of it kind of made it look as if it would be difficult to work with, but I still think he would be interesting to sit down with. I don't think he could. He doesn't come across like the kind of guy who you'd be like, oh, I want to go to the pub with him and have a drink mm-hmm. and have a great laugh. Like the way Danny DeVito, you'd get yeah. the impression solely just from his character and it's always sunny, you'd be like, he'd be fucking hilarious to sit <laughs> down with me for a good couple of hours. But to sit, maybe to meet Jim Carrey and be like, oh, I really like your stuff. And he'd be like, oh, thanks, man. And then that'd be that. <laughs> Or he'd still be Andy Kaufman. Nah, fucking fuck. weird. But see that whole thing he done at the fashion show when he was like, it made him look like a dick because the the woman who's doing the interview was like, oh, oh really? Oh, you're not real? Oh, I'm not real? Ha ha. You're like, no, he's talking. He's talking mega sense right there. <laughs> you're just a fucking idiot that's cared about clothes. Uh, 
I do know about how you're talking about it. <laughs> you can show me that. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard. I also watched Candyman, Farewell to the Flesh. I haven't seen any sequels. I, I own them all, but I haven't watched them. It's on Netflix. Right. It's really fun. The director is Bill Condon. Not from Blood Sandwich. Uh, who actually went on to direct Dream Girls and The New Beauty and the Beast. The one what, those are two big movies that are completely different from Candyman. Yep. One of them I have seen, one of them I haven't. Uh, Lena Moon watched Beauty and the Beast a few weeks ago when she wasn't feeling well. Mm. And it is not that bad. One made me watch Dream Girls. <laughs> and uh, they sing a lot. Uh, so did you watch anything? <laughs> I don't think I've watched anything. No, I tell you, I did. I watched the the voice in the stone or the voice behind the stone. Um, is that Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones? Game of Thrones, right? Um, is it on Sky? It is on Sky. Right, yeah, okay. Sky Premier, I think, or whatever. It's the one. I think I, I recall talking to Rudy online about this. And it was one of the movies that I started to hate trailers because it gave everything away in the trailer. Mm-hmm. Now. It was so boring and so uneventful that I can't remember if it did give anything in the trailer, but it is not. I do not recommend it in the slightest. So you give it an eight? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's genuinely, genuine piss. It's shit. It's fucking so boring. It's god awful. I'm quite a sucker for posters. And when I seen it on Sky, I thought the actual what kind of movie poster of it looks shit. So I'm not even going to bother with that. I know. Oh, I like Amelia Clark. Yeah. For obvious reasons. Mm eyes yeah uh, so for the end of the next few episodes we're going to do something a little bit different you're getting stuff for free <laughs> uh, are they getting it for free do they need to pay for this otherwise they're getting they're getting what we're giving them for free they're getting a taster yeah they're getting, they're getting a teaser you know how when somebody just slips you a nip this is what we're giving you <laughs> we're, we're putting it in and then it's up to you if you're just slapping the tip and to, you didn't yeah. to get the full force <laughs> yeah I think that's like this is probably not how the author wants us to sell this. So Anthony J. Stanton is has written a book called One Spit and Twice Die. If you followed the podcast for a while, you might remember that I read it, loved it, and put up a review like quite back at the start. Yeah, we used to do written reviews, yeah. I on our Goodreads and stuff. It's a, a vampire series. There's things in the pipeline that it may be spreading across other media, so this is a good chance to jump in now. The book's brilliant. But it's three book. Is there three books? There's three books. Yep. Well, there's going to be three books. There's going to be three books. I've only read the first two so far. He's converted it into an audiobook, and luckily, he's given us the first few chapters, so we're going to play a chapter at the end of the next few episodes yep. to give his a little teaser, see if he's like it. Which to whet your appetite, so they say. <laughs> I definitely think you will. And then you can go on, you can check his website out at onespittingtwice.com and the audiobook is available on Amazon where you can also buy the paperback if you're still into old, ye old way of reading rather than through your oh, Who does it? I, I only... <laughs> 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 oh, you mean audiobooks? Yeah, get the audiobook, that's what we're teasing you here. But yeah. I like to read an old book. It's not. Takes you, me. In fact, audiobooks are built for people. I like know you. that's that's completely true. Yeah. Because then you finish a book within nine. I months. should probably check out audiobooks more often. You should. You can even listen to them at one point five speed, and it goes through quicker. Sounds like we last reading it too, though. <laughs> <laughs> Just how I like it. 
Hey, you also buy the audio. This is this is the worst <laughs> ad you've ever listened This uh, is why we don't get any ad- <laughs> any sponsors. Uh, you can also buy it on iTunes. Uh, definitely, definitely check it out. You can also, I think, on Amazon you'll be able to get a free sample of a few chapters. It's well worth it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I like reading. Ah, finished books in mm-hmm. <laughs> less than 365 yeah. days and the characters are good the story's good it's a vampire thing so a lot of people will think oh shit it's been done before there's a lot in this that's quite yeah a wee bit different so if you like The Walking Dead and you get in it too late like Scott and then can't fucking let it go this could be a good chance to jump into a series at the very beginning before it becomes this fucking monster that is The Walking Dead I have high hopes for this than The Walking Dead though because I fucking hate The Walking Dead but there was no even any reason for you to start bashing The Walking Dead we're talking about vampires I just got to shoehorn it in so here is chapter one of Once Bitten Twice Die by Anthony J. Stanton find it on Amazon find it on iTunes if you want message us we'll give you the links to where to buy it from where to check it out and also the link to my Goodreads review, if you want to hear that. We will put uh, all these links up in uh, on our Twitter, and we'll put it up in our Facebook group, which you can find if you just search for us on Facebook at Scott and Liam versus Evil. Enjoy. Cheers. Once Bitten, Twice Die. Book One from the Blood of the Infected series by Anthony J. Stanton. Narrated by Anthony J. Stanton. Chapter 1. This is the end. The thought was only fleeting. In reality, the end had been and gone a long time before. Sinner had warned him not to do anything stupid. But here he was, fighting for his life. What he really should have done was to just give up and let death claim its prize. If he had known what the future held in store for him, he may well have accepted the inevitable. He may have sought a more agreeable means of dying something a little less brutal, perhaps something that did not jeopardise the lives of others. Had he been aware that he himself was soon to become a vicious murderer, he might not have battled quite so hard. But Abbott was not gifted with foresight. At that moment, all that consumed him was trying to stay alive just a little longer. Besides, what kind of death can any one person choose for their first experience of it? His aggressor advanced with surprising vigour. Abbott was forced back onto the table. He was fit, well-trained and considerably larger than the other. Nevertheless, he found himself unable to contain the onslaught, the triumph of wrathful incognizance over strength and experience. Only certain kinds of demise permit the luxury of reviewing your existence as it flashes in front of your eyes in glorious technicolour. Some keep you fully engaged and struggling for salvation, until the very end. In such cases, even a brief perusal of your life in black and white is asking too much. Abbott's situation fell firmly into the latter category. He frantically grasped the lunatic's forearms. His assailant, however, possessed unnatural surges of power dredged up from his inner demons. A trail of phlegm and a guttural snarl escaped his lips. Hands clawed and teeth snapped. He lunged repeatedly at Abbott's face. He was virtually within reach now. Abbott dodged his head to the side with a grunt. He tried to get a knee under his attacker's body, but the man was writhing too much. It was just not possible. Yet, without doing so, he knew he would not be able to hold him off much longer. His strength, 
along with his hope, was fading fast. Abbott was flecked with spittle. The stench of warm, rancid breath was overpowering as their heads slowly came together. Some of the man's teeth had rotted and fallen out, leaving open sores in blackened gums. His face was mottled with an unhealthy purple tinge. It was covered with scabs and flaking skin. Red lines, like those of a habitual drinker, covered his cheeks. His eyes were bulging and bloodshot and darted about as though without focus, yet the most chilling factor was the absolute lack of perception. The pupils were dilated and blank like those of a shark. It was as though he was just lashing out blindly. If the eyes are a window to the soul, then these particular portals looked out onto a vista of pure hell. And then there was the rage, unprovoked yet wanton and plentiful. There was just an overpowering urge to kill. Abbott's arms burned. His attacker still showed no sign of tiring. If anything, he grew even more frenzied, and ironically, that may have provided an invaluable reprieve. Death took a reluctant step back and waited, denied its reward for now. As the man thrashed about, there was a loud crack. The back legs of the table splintered. The pair were sent tumbling. Abbott hit the floor hard. Pain shot through his shoulder and he was winded, but he managed to slip a leg between the two of them. Deftly, he launched the man over his head, slamming him against the wall. This was his moment to save himself. This was his one chance to live. If the other reacted more quickly, then he would surely be dead. He rolled and scrambled to his feet, grabbing at whatever he could reach. A heavy pewter candlestick discarded nearby. He swung as his opponent started to rise. It struck with a thud across the temple. The force jarred right up through Abbott's arm, but somehow his adversary did not go down. As he leapt, Abbott backed up and swung again and again. Each blow solidly found its mark, leaving deep red gashes. The man sagged to his knees, a trail of blood at his nostril. He flailed forwards with an enraged gargling as the liquid dripped from his chin. Abbott struggled to maintain balance. He desperately hit out once more and cracked the skull right on the top. This time it made a different sound, more hollow and decisive. This time the candlestick embedded itself. This time the man went down. Abbott sank to the ground. The body lay at his feet with one leg twitching disturbingly. A small pool of viscous blood gradually took shape around the head forming a macabre halo. Abbott gulped down air as his hands started trembling. He was in an upstairs room with bookshelves lining three of the walls. The house was identical to all the others in the street, and presumably, in most, this would have been a bedroom. However, the owners of this one, almost certainly dead, or worse, had turned it into a reading room. The shelves were made of cheap knotted pine, and books were lying on the veneer flooring, torn and discarded. He noticed that only one tome remained standing the Bible. As he sat trying to regain composure, the violence of the confrontation made it hard to focus. He found himself fixing on irrelevant details, a mist enshrouding his mental faculties. He looked around vaguely for a matching candle holder. These would probably have come as a pair. The random notion surfaced that it was just like a scenario from Cluedo. Colonel Mustard, or, in this case, Sergeant Matteo Abbott, in the library with a candlestick. He wondered again where Sinner was, as he should have arrived a long time before. It was most unlike him to screw up. 
Only now did he start to appreciate that something had gone badly wrong. Sergeant Abbott had left the relative safety of RAF Headley Court earlier that afternoon, but later than was prudent. Headley Court was a small military station to the north of London, near the town of Bishop Storford. It was a medical establishment specialising in rehabilitation, as well as research and training. Abbott had been driven by Private Giuseppe Campos in convoy with another Land Rover carrying Sergeant Sinner and Private Rohith, both soldiers from the Gurkha Regiment. They had gone to a supermarket and had carefully and quietly loaded shopping trolleys with bottled water, tinned food, cleaning products and other essential supplies. Sinner kept an anxious vigil over the three of them throughout. Campos had become agitated as the afternoon progressed. Sarge, you know my parents live around here, don't you? He looked at Abbott through veiled eyes. Hmm, Abbott replied cautiously, not looking forward to the next few words. Sinner had heard the comment too. He stood in the aisle a few metres away, gripping his SA-80 assault rifle as he scanned all around them, listening for sounds of anyone approaching in the gloom. Their afternoon had been uneventful so far, although the threat of attack always lingered ominously. To let one's guard down meant courting death. They all knew it, the RAF station had experienced it, and they did not want to add to the obituaries. Sinner flashed Abbott a look with a hint of a warning, but there was also empathy in his expression. Abbott respected Sinner. He was a fastidious and dedicated soldier that had a big, compassionate streak running through him. He was charismatic and the troops took to him well. Sarge, what do you think? Campos took a step nearer to Abbott, his hands fidgeting. Is there any chance that we could swing by my house, just for a moment? I mean, they're almost certainly dead, but I'd really like to make sure, just in case, you know? Abbott rubbed his chin and avoided looking at Campos, whose pleading eyes drilled into him. Sarge? Abbott glanced at Sinner, who just shrugged and looked away. All right, all right. We'll drive over to their house when we're done here, but we're not getting out of the landy. We can beep the horn a few times, maybe shout out of the window, but we're not getting out. Is that clear? He answered sternly. But Campos was no longer listening. His face had lit up and he was chattering away to himself. He was a nice lad, always cheerful and keen to help as best he could. Abbott knew how much Campos thought of his parents and how much he idolised his father. For a moment, Abbott felt a flush of bonhomie. Even in this terrible world that they all barely existed in now, he had been able to brighten someone's day, albeit briefly. Sergeant Sinner turned to Abbott with a grin, sharing in the moment. I think we're just about done here. Why don't you two poke off and we'll catch up with you at the house? Abbott's smile vanished as he was jerked back to reality. He was aware that every second spent off base exposed them to significant risk. And whilst he wanted to help Campos find his parents, if at all possible, he did not want to put himself or his colleagues in any greater jeopardy than was absolutely necessary. Are you sure? he asked with a frown. Wouldn't it be better if we waited and went together? This is the last little stuff to chuck in the landy. It'll only take a mo, and we'll be right behind you, losers. I'd rather we get back to the station as fast as possible, and certainly before sunset. Sunset was at 6.13. It was now 5.42. That did not leave them much time. Abbott was about to argue until he saw the look on Campos's face. He shrugged. Sure. Okay. We'll get cracking then. And thanks. This means a lot to the boy. 
Yeah, I kind of gathered that, Sinna laughed. Go on, just stay in radio contact and don't do anything stupid, okay? Anything stupid. Did that include allowing Campos to persuade him it was safe to leave the vehicle after there was no reply to their shouting? Did that include going into the house, even though Abbott knew it was lunacy to be confined in such close quarters? If only Sinner knew how stupid he had been since last they spoke. Abbott now shuddered and the makeshift weapon slipped from his grip as he passed a hand across his face. Only then did he notice the throbbing in his arm. It was a small bite mark. The skin was barely broken, hardly worth mentioning, really, with just a slight prick of blood. He could tell where the man's teeth had fallen out, with the marks on his arm representing those that remained. He rubbed his flesh ruefully and pulled the sleeve down. As he sat hugging his knees to his chest, the temptation was to remain there, hidden and safe from the horrors of the outside world, horrors that were never far from one's conscious thoughts, horrors that temporarily submerged when one was preoccupied, but then resurfaced like a bloated corpse. However, he knew he could not stay there. It was hard to find motivation, but he had to leave the house and fast. He rebuked himself for his inactivity. Come on, get moving, soldier. This is no time to rest. Wearily, he rose and crossed quietly to the door. With every step, the floorboards creaked. He stopped and held his breath, listening for sounds. The house was still. Evidently, the scuffles had not attracted any further unwanted attention. Yet. He drew his gun and flicked the safety catch off, taking no chances this time, then raised his radio and operated the press-to-talk button. Sinner, this is Abbott. Do you read? Nothing. Sinner, this is Abbott. Come in. Deathly silence. Odd, he thought. The only explanation he could think of was that they had got confused and gone straight back to base. Ordinarily, Abbott might have been angered by this. Ordinarily, alarm bells might have started to ring. But now he just clipped the radio back onto his belt, rubbed his arm, and continued, survival mode dictating his actions. He paused on the landing and listened again then slipped quickly down the stairs. Campos's body lay at the bottom, his head twisted unnaturally to the side where his neck had snapped. His eyes and mouth were open in the grimace he bore as he was savaged and fell. Abbott felt for a pulse, but he already knew there would be none. Above him on the wall was a photo, a portrait in a wooden frame. It sidetracked Abbott and he stared at it for a moment. It was a typical family pose of much-loved mother, an idolised father with their arms around each other's shoulders, a boy, Private Giuseppe Campos, of perhaps only 17 years old, was sandwiched between them, kneeling down as though in the stance of a football team. Campos was not much older now and had hardly changed since that photo was taken. He reflected on the photo a moment, the familiar ease with which the three of them embraced each other, thought with sadness for a moment of his own parents. Now, however, was not the time for reminiscing. There would be time for that later, he thought, although in this he was wrong. He was conscious that it was not level and dimly aware that normally his fastidious nature would have prompted him to straighten it. But not today, not now. Abbott had served in three war zones and accumulated several medals for his efforts. He had witnessed death, both amongst his own troops and the enemy, and was on first-name terms with it. Recent dealings, however, were all very new and strange. Perhaps in times before, he might have been more traumatised by this most recent attack. 
but now he steeled himself, shook off the mental fog, and moved with the intent of someone focused on staying alive. The prospect that death has not yet left the building, but is somewhere nearby, sharpening his scythe and having a quick breather before returning to the scene of the crime, does wonders to one's motivation. He looked down at Campos's lifeless body. Sorry, pal, heaven knows you're better off where you are now. He crossed himself, although since very recently he no longer believed in God. He reached down and took Campos's holstered pistol and dog tag. It did not escape his attention that, like himself, Campos had not even had time to draw his weapon. Suddenly there was a creak from upstairs which made him freeze. He hoped it was merely the sound of the house groaning in the wind rather than his attacker walking to the top of the stairs. Silence returned. In fact, there was an eerie stillness in general. There were no noises of traffic or any kind of life from outside, none of the background chatter that one normally expects from living in an urban area. Creepy. At that moment, a car alarm sounded, screaming out into the quiet with its shrill tones, and the noise was even more alien in this world devoid of the usual detritus of life. The house was in disarray. Furniture lay overturned and broken. There was smashed crockery on the carpet, and a bloody stain smeared down one wall. A stale smell pervaded throughout. With a nervous glance at the stairs, Abbott moved to the front door. He looked at the sky, although, in truth, the weather did not matter. The weather would never be of consequence again, just as the date no longer meant anything. He was more interested in the time of nightfall. The sun was scuttling quickly westwards, unwilling to loiter, and neither was Abbott. He really did not want to be off station and alone when it got dark. The road, although gloomy and unlit, was quiet. There was no movement until a dog ran past, its tongue lolling out. It seemed unconcerned and happy as though everything was normal, and for that he envied it. The dog stopped briefly to scratch and sniffed at a wall before continuing. Abbott slipped out and moved guardedly towards his Land Rover. Glass crunched beneath his feet and he tried to walk as quietly as possible, checking all around him as he went. It was predominantly a residential street, and there were signs everywhere of hysteria. The gate to Campos's house was off its hinges, rubbish was strewn all around, and the windows in many adjoining buildings were smashed. Old newspapers danced in the breeze like modern-age tumbleweeds, and there was a distinct smell of burning. On the garden path, he noticed the head from a plastic Barbie doll. In the garden next door was a child's plimsoll, lying in a patch of dried blood. The shoe was small and pink, and Abbott had to force himself to look away and not think too deeply. There was still no sign of Sergeant Sinner and Private Rohith. At the gate, he looked all around and felt confident that he was not being watched. Not for the first time that day, he was wrong. Not for the first time that day, Lady Luck was smiling upon him more than he would ever know. He got into the vehicle, and with shaking hands, he started the engine. He was well aware that there would be questions on his arrival back at base. He could imagine the anger as to why they had been out alone with no backup. He had no answers, no good reason for their actions, other than the emphatic plea of a young man desperate to find his parents, a plea that he himself could well understand. On the short drive back, he could not help but notice various corpses arranged in their final resting places. He had to swerve around a body lying in the middle of the road. Another, 
An elderly gentleman in a pinstripe suit was slumped against the front door of a house as though asleep. Abbott saw them all but felt nothing. It was as if the attack upon himself, or perhaps the proximity of his own demise, had left him emotionless and unable to empathise. By the time he arrived back at the base, the shock and exertion of the violence and the effect of Campos's death were starting to affect him. He felt exhausted. Sweat had dried on him, giving him a chill, and his arms and back ached as though he had flu. Corporal Bannister from the Army Security Regiment at Headley Court was smoking in the guardroom. He had been sat on duty with his feet up on a table for the last half hour, his green military shirt crumpled and open at the neck, more than uniform standards would normally permit. His rifle rested on the desk in front of him, pointing into the distance down the empty road leading to the station. He allowed the smoke to escape from his lips, slowly bleeding away until recapturing it in his nostrils, a trick he had admired in an old movie featuring Humphrey Bogart and an attractive lady whose name he could not remember. With his spare hand, he casually played with his cigarette lighter. It was in the style of a metallic zippo, but had the caricature of a naked woman on the side, a tacky souvenir from a recent beach holiday with mates. Colleagues had teased him for possessing such a crass object, but he liked the fact that the lighter was a vague source of controversy and rarely cared for other people's opinions anyway. From the main road, any car that turned to enter the base had approximately 40 metres to drive up to the guardroom. When he saw Abbott's Land Rover swing into the approach lane, he took his feet off the table, but did not extinguish the cigarette, and remained leaning back in the chair. As the sergeant slowly brought the car to a halt, he flicked a length of ash on the floor. Slowly he got to his feet and wandered out to unlock the gates. How was your day at work, honey? He began as Abbott wound down his window, then stepped back in surprise and cursed. You look dreadful, he spat out. Abbott shot him a glance but said nothing. He took in the decline in uniform standards and the informal, almost disrespectful way in which Bannister addressed him. The fact that he was smoking whilst on guard and had been slow to open the gates. However, he could not muster the enthusiasm to say anything, something that Bannister would later recall as having struck him as out of character. Where are Sinner and Rohith? Dunno. They haven't got back yet? Abbott asked listlessly. No. Hey, where's Campos? Bannister asked with real concern in his voice now. Dead. What? Bannister covered his mouth with a hand as he digested the news. How? From beyond the guardroom they heard a bellowing. Bannister, are Abbott and Sinner back yet? Station Commander Group Captain Tristan Denny approached the gates, but stopped short as soon as he saw Abbott. Good Lord, what on earth happened? Where's Campos? Are you okay? Not sure which question to answer first, Abbott just repeated himself in a monotone voice. Dead. Denny stood for a moment staring as he too processed the information and then deflated a little in the shoulders and back as though certain sections of his body had been punctured. His reaction was similar to Bannister's. He brought his hands together in front of his face like a monk deep in prayer and closed his eyes. Then they flickered open and fixed nervously on Abbott. You don't look so good yourself. How are you? I'm okay, sir. A little tired, but otherwise all right. Only then did Denny realise that the other Land Rover was not there. He looked confused. Bannister noticed the vein on his temple 
stand out as he started to go a little red in the face. Where are the others? I thought two cars went off base. Abbott found it hard to meet his scowl. Uh, we got separated, sir. I thought they should be back already. Separated? Denny was incredulous. How on earth did that happen? It was Campos, sir. His parents live close to where we were looking for supplies, so we just popped by to check if anybody was there. We only took a moment and Sinner was supposed to come and join us, but he never showed up. Abbott trailed off as a station commander threw his hands in the air. Overreacting again, Bannister thought. Finally, Denny took a deep breath, heaving his shoulders up and forcing himself to calm down. He turned away from the two soldiers and rubbed his head frantically for a moment. Look, this is really unacceptable, he said, trying to keep his voice calm. I thought we had introduced procedures to avoid this kind of event. Totally unacceptable, but that can all wait. The important thing now is the whereabouts of Sinner and Rohith. I need you to show me exactly where you left them and where you arranged to rendezvous. Then drop the Land Rover at MT, but I want you in my office later for a debrief. Bannister stood fidgeting awkwardly. His gelled brown hair made his naturally impish features seem decidedly more boyish and mischievous than his 28 years would imply. His dark eyes, ever alert and restless, darted about anxiously. As Abbott drove away, Denny did not even acknowledge him at first, but stood swaying slightly with his head bowed. A light moan escaped him. He had never looked as tired and defeated as at that moment. His ginger hair was greying and slightly unkempt, and smudges under his eyes indicated how badly he was sleeping, yet his uniform was still immaculately pressed and his army boots were gleaming. How long has he been back? Denny finally asked. He just arrived that minute, sir. He looked terrible. Yes, sir. So do you, Bannister thought. In truth, they all looked haggard nowadays, and the stresses were beginning to tell on Denny more than most. Radio Captain Lewis, and tell him to meet me in my office in five minutes. Denny turned and stalked away from the guardroom. Bannister was left feeling vulnerable and alone as he searched up and down the road for any sign of Sergeant Sinner before going to recheck the padlock. He sank back into his chair, lit another cigarette and nervously picked up his weapon. He looked out at the setting sun, half veiled by clouds. He often thought that the most beautiful sunsets he had ever seen were in England, the frequently overcast sky lending itself to dramatics. The red shafts of light poked through and illuminated the cloud from beneath, as though the roof of the heavens was aflame. Although tonight it felt to Bannister more like hell itself was boiling over, spewing forth its contents unto the earth. He was morbidly becoming a little more resigned to the prospect of his own fatality with the passing of each day and every death. He sat staring at the outside world beyond the safety of the fence as the shadows lengthened and gathered around him. Bugger! Captain Thomas Lewis cursed as he left Group Captain Denny's office. The news was bad, really bad. Another soldier killed and the whereabouts of two more unknown. As well as that, the thought of going out now as twilight shrouded the station was not one that he relished, and the nonchalant way Denny had mentioned it made his mood even worse. Still, he would have it no other way. As second in command on the base, if two of his men were missing, then he would damn well go and find them. He was certainly not going to go out alone, though. He wanted three of his best soldiers with him. 
they would most likely go unmolested, but you never knew. In less than five minutes, they were driving away from the station with Corporal Bambarak from the supply and logistics section hastily locking the gates behind them. Captain Lewis turned to look back, as he always did, as the protection of RAF Headley Court receded out of reach. He was from the Royal Artillery and had been at Headley Court for only six months. However, he had served in the army for ten years and, like many of his colleagues, a lot of that time had been spent in Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghanistan, and thus he had a fair amount of frontline experience. Stay alert, lads. Let's not get our names on the list of deceased for today. We don't want what happened to Parsons to happen to us, do we? With the news of Private Campos's death and the other two still missing, the atmosphere in the car was sombre. Sat in the back, even Bannister's normally incorrigible manner had been quietened. Beside him sat the dark, hulking mass of Lance Corporal Dean Millington, a black man mountain from the Army Security Regiment, and a reassuringly solid soldier to keep handy. Driving them away from safety was his most senior sergeant, a Scot named Garrick Stradling. He had served for more than 20 years in the army and was one of the most experienced men on the station. He was fairly short and stout, with a large chest and belly and thick arms. His gruff, cynical attitude to life in general reflected perfectly his physical appearance, and he seemed to have an idiom of doom for every occasion. He had an enormous auburn moustache and was balding on top with a wispy comb over at the front. Although Lewis found him stubborn and uncooperative at times, he was definitely someone to take along on just such an excursion. Where to, boss? Sergeant Stradling asked. Captain Lewis had a map with the locations marked on it by Abbott. As Sinner had not arrived at the house of Campos's parents by the time Abbott had left, it seemed reasonable to start at the supermarket. The onset of nightfall shielded their eyes from the worst of the scenes of pandemonium that now littered the roads, scenes that these four soldiers were all too familiar with and were grateful not to be reminded of yet again. Occasional creatures scurried out of their way as Sergeant Stradling whisked them wordlessly through the streets to their destination, hands gripping the wheel tightly as he scanned their path. They arrived at the store and Stradling warily brought the Land Rover to a halt. No one spoke. Lewis peered out, trying to see any movement or sign of their comrades. Odd, Stradling said. Huh? Lewis turned to see what had caught his attention. Stradling pointed. Near the entrance to the store was the Land Rover. They never left. So they're here somewhere, Bannister said, as he leaned forwards from the rear. Let's go get him, I say, then get the hell out of Dodge. Being away from home gives me the willies. Okay, okay, just go easy, Lewis frowned. There's something not right about this. Why is their car still here? Why haven't they left yet? They should have been back at Headley Court a long time ago. He spoke into his radio. Sergeant Sinner? Private Rohith? But there was no answer. He turned to his sergeant. Before we get ourselves into any trouble, do the honours, please. Stradling honked the Land Rover's horn a few times, destroying the evening hush and making them all uneasy. Attracting such attention when away from the security of the station was never a wise idea, but in this case Lewis considered it inevitable. Only silence answered them back. I guess there's nothing for it then, Lewis said. Tentatively, they all got out of the vehicle, brandishing their SA-80 rifles before them. Straddling, 
Bring up the rear and keep checking your six, Lewis whispered. Let's keep it as quiet as possible. But he's only just been blasting out the landy's micking horn, Bannister muttered to Millington, earning him a scowl from straddling. They examined the other Land Rover, but it gave no clues. The rear had been half-loaded with supplies and all seemed completely normal. Lewis motioned towards the entrance of the supermarket and the four shuffled forwards with straddling casting nervous glances over his shoulder. By now, night engulfed them and with no lighting, the store was in total darkness. They crept along, torches probing back and forth. There was a putrid smell of decaying food mingling with the stale funk from the dirt of animals. The aisles were littered with goods that had been knocked off shelves. Some had split, spilling their guts, making every step crunch painfully. At the end of the first aisle, Lewis raised a hand to bring them to a halt. They clustered together, breathing rapidly, but as quietly as possible. Cautiously, he called out into the threatening blackness. Sinner? Rohith? Nothing. They proceeded down a second aisle. It was when they got to the third that they encountered something strange. The produce displays had been absolutely decimated. The shelves had been toppled and packets and cans strewn all around. Something serious had happened here. This was not the action of marauding animals. The shelf units were substantial. To knock one over would have required considerable force, to break one even more so. Lewis looked back to ensure the others were aware of the potential significance. Still, there was no sign of either missing soldier as they stood amidst the mess. He scanned around, but it was Straddling who noticed it and gave a hiss. What is it? Lewis asked. Straddling just pointed. Down, at their feet. Blood. They were standing in a pool of it. Lots of it. It must have stretched for several metres along the floor and was splattered on the shelving. Bugger me, Bannister explained with a low whistle. Frantically now, they widened their search, but there was no sign of the soldiers anywhere, just the ominous streak of blood that looked like something or somebody had been dragged through it, smearing a gory trail along the aisle, until it suddenly stopped. There were no bodies or indications as to the source of it. As they stood, bewildered, back at the scene of so much carnage, Lewis was no closer to an explanation. He could not determine from where the blood had come or why the smudged trail ended so abruptly. What the hell happened? Lewis asked. If they've been killed, where are the bodies? And if they haven't been killed, then where are they? It was all too surreal, too inexplicable. He could not shake the feeling that at any moment they would be attacked themselves. His torch picked up something reflective in the dark and he stooped to pick it up. Dog tags. They were printed with the name Sinner and his staff number. Oh, God, no, he mumbled as his last hope disappeared. Then he shouted, an unnatural sound in the silence. Sinner! Rohith! No one answered. His voice died in the darkness. There was a trace of blood on the dog tags and the chain had been severed. There was nothing else. No other sign that either soldier had ever been there. No weapons, no bodies, nothing. They checked outside and all around the store, but there was still no indication as to their whereabouts. The soldiers appeared to have vanished, spirited away for some dark purpose. Finally, Lewis turned to his men with a baffled look, and he repeated his question. What the hell happened? 
But there were no answers. They bunched closely and looked about them, feeling ever more vulnerable. Boss, they're not here, Stradling murmured, not sounding his usual confident self. We would have found them. We've searched everywhere. They wouldn't have just abandoned the Land Rover. Whatever has occurred, they're long gone. They're dead, was all Bannister could manage as he peered into the darkness, voicing what they all believed. Millington just stood impassively as always, watching and waiting. I don't know what's happened, but we can do nothing for them, Lewis said, speaking quickly and quietly. I hate to go without finding any answers, but I think you're right. They're dead, and I suggest we get out of here fast before the same thing happens to us. Bannister nodded a little too enthusiastically. Absolutely. Swiftly, they manoeuvred their tight huddle, rifles swinging wildly at every noise as they scurried back the vehicles. The keys were still in the ignition of the other Land Rover, so Bannister and Millington took it. With a remorseful glance towards the supermarket, Lewis got in as Stradling started the engine and floored the accelerator, whisking them back to the protection of the base. Safe. For the time being, at least.